You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. So, Neil, today I wanted to talk a little bit about moving the needle and actual measures of importance, the, the kind of the so what factor. Let's talk about data versus publication a little. Yeah, so I think I mentioned last time I'm sort of, I don't know, I'm getting grumpy in my, I don't want to say old age, but older age. I'm intending to be quite grumpy as I get older. I don't know if I, I'm just getting grumpier or if it's just something that, you know, but, you know, the, and it's something that my PhD supervisor, Chris Bishop, said to me when I was coming up with stuff. He said, you have to answer the so what factor. You know, that's nice that you did some maths, but so what? And I don't know, you know, I, that, that's something that I try to do. I'm not saying I always manage. Sometimes something just feels interesting and you're not quite sure how it's going to be used. But increasingly with the large numbers of people publishing more and more papers, I just feel sometimes I see a lot and sort of say, well, so what? What does this do for me? I mean, and, and maybe it's just because I'm too far away from the specific thing they're working on. So it might be a little bit unfair. But one of the things that I notice is, so I have this thing that I almost half my talks or 75% of my talks start with is model plus data leads to prediction through compute. That's the sort of, it's not really a formula that leads to machine learning. That's the under, underpinnings of machine learning. So half of the job is model, half of the job is data. And like most of the time, I think the value added is right in the moment. Now it's coming more from data that people are curating and producing and sharing. And I think we need to sort that out. There was an example of a paper, which I won't go into the details of, where, where people hadn't produced a model, they hadn't produced any data, new data. Um, they'd run it on some old data, which wasn't particularly appropriate for the task and, and claimed greater than human performance. And then shortly afterwards, another paper in a similar domain came out with an amazing data set associated with it, which they spent ages curating and collecting, which... Um, but fine. But, you know, part of me is like, well, who cares about the model? I mean, like, yeah, both models were fine. They're interesting. You know, I've combined attention with LSTM and, you know, and I've got some image. Cool, cool. We, we know you can do that, right? But the real contribution was in the second paper and it was the data set, right? And we're just not crediting people for that. I heard indirectly from a senior colleague who's been around for a long time and they're in computer vision. They said, well, all I do is look at the data sets. I just walk around the conference and I just look at the data sets people have produced because that's the only thing that is genuinely advancing the field. Maybe that's an extreme position and maybe the individual didn't quite say that. Regardless, but I, I, I tend to take extreme positions when I think that something's being underrepresented. And I, I genuinely think the effort put into curating and cleaning and providing data that's that's at least half of the equation of machine learning we don't credit it properly so how do you think we should credit it properly is there is it a shift in thinking or is it a shift in just is it a shift in the way that you think about your data set as being what sort of place it takes up in your publication like should that be at the forefront and then you talk about the processes that you investigated it with or is it something where we have to think about we have to sort of rethink the place of the the data set in the importance of larger just larger conversation like get it out before you publish or talk about it before you publish it's hard because i think part of it is the culture around what we do we assume that these wonderful written documents contain all the information that we need with these ideas we think we're all about ideas I mean, I don't think, you know, to an extent, there's no such thing as a new idea anyway. People overstate the 
I mean, with some exceptions, with some amazing, incredible people that really push things forward. But most ideas are fairly derivative. Yet we place ideas up well ahead of, of the other parts. That, I mean, it depends. If we think we're just doing science for the sake of aren't we intellectually interesting, then maybe ideas take precedence over anything else. But if you're actually in a field that's producing technology that you think changes and does things, then I think you should look across the different parts of that. And having said that, we've had this problem with software. We continue to have this problem with software. And one of the key things when I say culture is people don't cite it. They don't cite properly the origin of the software. The other thing that I really dislike is this people create software and then they write a paper about it and they only cite that paper. Then no one else can feel that they get a, a contribution for contributing to the software. Um, so the softwares that my own groups produced, we've never published a sort of paper with a restricted author set on the machine learning software. We tended to do that for computational biology software because actually you tend to analyze a data set at the same time. Because we are aware that the software will only be successful if it's adopted and if people feel part of it. We want people to to engage. Yeah, and in fact, the people that... Um, the ideal thing is you produce software which encodes an idea that you think is going to help someone and the people in that sub-community take it on and, and run with it. And if they don't, if you've, if you've taken all the credit out of it at outset, but by the same token, how do you get credit for that sort of thing? Well, there are mechanisms. You can look at people's GitHub contributions. You can look at how they interact around these things, but they're harder to measure. Data, though, you know, people... I was reading a draft paper from someone that had asked me to sort of just look through their paper. And I noticed that the entire paper was based around a particular data set, but they'd not cited the data set creators. They'd cited uh, someone who'd done a review of different methods on that data set, but not the data set creators. You know, every single citation, the one citation that had enabled their paper to exist was, was missing. So I, I think, you know, it's hard to change culture around these things, as we know, because I, you know, speaking last week about, okay, so reviewers like to see very technical things. Reviewers have a perception. As program chairs of a conference, I very quickly realized that there's very little that you can do to change your reviewers' minds about what they think their job is. You can write to them what their job is. You can put an instruction that says, you should try and do this. We're more interested in exciting papers than we are in reams of maths, but they don't read those instructions. They have a sense of what their job is. And I think that that's potentially the very difficult thing to change. Everyone would probably agree, well, oh, yes, data is important, you know, and it is terrible. And then they don't do it. They don't cite it. And people don't criticize them for it. So maybe the answer is to have, um, I mean, there are great, well, there were many efforts. There was something called ML Data a long time ago that aimed to sort of collect data sets. There's OpenML, which collects data sets and tasks. I, so, so I really like Joaquin von Scorum. I, I don't know why we, we don't make enough use of them. Maybe we need something a bit lighter touch or something makes clearer that you're supposed to cite it. You know, converse to the software issue, maybe because it typically is a group of people that work on a data set and the data set doesn't then get modified by contribution. It could be, but that's a new version. You don't have the same problem you have with software around... Uh, attribution of the creators well any more than you have attribution problems for actual papers which i think are massive and the whole thing about who contributed and all this is a, is a mess and doesn't really reflect how science is done but you know we're not introducing new issues if, if we were to to do that have a lighter weight way for you know 
um, venue for, for sharing information about data sets, not necessarily the storage of data sets, but in crediting and, and noting how they should be cited. Yeah, I don't know. It's maybe cultural. Yeah, I don't know. That's fascinating. Well, we'll have more on our website about citations of data sets and um, really thinking about what is the the core idea that drove your idea, you know, publication versus your information um, on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, this week's question on Talking Machines is about internships versus, I believe, salaried positions. So this this came over our transom. I've been offered an internship at an organization that seems to be able to ask really interesting questions and move quickly about problems that I care about. I've also been offered several salaried positions, though these would be more project-driven, and I don't I can't see clearly to things that I am interested in there, though I'm worried about the flexibility of an internship versus a salaried position. What advice do you have? Worried in which way do you think? Meaning there's less flexibility in a salaried position, isn't there? But there's more pay, there's more money. Oh no, there's there's pay for longer time. Actually, some internships are very well paid. Yeah, right. So I think that that's like that's the question, right? So I think when we're thinking about the field as it is now, that maybe an internship as is as good as a salary job, and especially if you have direct access to work to being able to do work that you're really excited about. I think the field is changing so quickly, and we've seen sort of research positions move very quickly between academia and industry and, and, and people sort of changing their position and their groupings all the time, that, that maybe the place that has the questions that you're excited about is the one that it might be best to head towards. Yeah. I mean, actually, I guess, so part of it must depend on where you are in your career and how you see your career going, because it's, part, it's really an explore-exploit question, right? Everything's explore-exploit. And it's fractal. Don't forget it. Everything's explore, exploit. Yeah, given the finite time horizon of your life, if you're 84, probably an internship isn't the... Uh, well, it might be, you know, fun. But, you know, it's not gonna, clearly not going to affect your career choices in the future as much as an internship would do when you're, when you're 28 or something. So, so let's assume that the, the context is graduate during your PhD, or undergraduate, I guess, or someone interested in moving into machine learning. I mean, I think it's also going to depend on the nature of the institution, right? So how much an internship at one of the leading tech companies, an internship in Neil Lawrence's group be amazing. You just write your ticket into Jeff Hinton's group after you get into Neil Lawrence's. Whoa, whoa, you mean you write your ticket into Neil Lawrence's group once you've Spend a bit of time in Jeff Hinton's. What are you saying? After you've done your work with Did Jeff. Did you get that the wrong way around? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, t- we, we take someone who's interned with Jeff. But I think a good piece of advice, you know, with all the advice that we've given about or, or you have given or that we've, the, all the questions that we've been able to discuss around um, excitement and passion and being able to do work that really feels meaningful is to go towards the questions that you feel like you can be dedicated to or you feel really passionate about exploring. Well, and you don't sometimes. So an internship is an opportunity to explore what you feel passionate about. And uh, to test out your ideas, it's sort of, I, I really love having the interns around when we have them. And we get a lot out of them bringing in 
different ideas from uh, different supervisors across the world. And I think one of the things they get out of it is seeing, um, you know, it's funny, like, like we do a lot of things like in my science team, I insist on shared code review between scientists and software engineers. I think that's absolutely critical. And I don't think many scientists in academia have a chance to see that, what a code review looks like, how you're working with what a software engineer will say about your code. I, I, do, I don't want to speak on behalf of them all, but I, I heard some feedback that that was one of the things people learned the most out of, having their code reviewed and what it was to contribute to a shared code base, which we've always, sort of in my group, we've computed, contributed shared code bases for, you know, I, I think as long as I can remember, like maybe 15 years. So that's not so common, I think, in academic groups. A lot of people own their own little bit of code and don't want anyone else messing with it, which I think is a very, very bad practice, actually. And uh, it's damaging to academia and actually it leads to more bugs. People think it's, it's less work because they can control it, but in the end, they just create buggier code. And so that's, that's just an example of the sort of thing that you learn by doing an internship in a particular group. And if you go different places, you'll see different things. And, and really being able to see those different things is going to help you make decisions what you want about those questions. Exactly like you said, a million years ago, I was really interested in politics and policy. And so I got myself an internship, an apprenticeship. Uh, it was actually a paid ship in the federal government. And I absolutely decided that I did not want to do any of those things from that point on. So like bringing yourself that information first is just really important. And that was a long time ago. That wasn't even like today. Imagine what you would have thought today. I know, I know, right? <laughs> you know, it's impossible. You like, you can't answer the question, what's better, internship or salaried position, right? You know, it depends on lots of circumstances. We're all faced with choices around where we are in terms of family circumstances, where we're trying to settle. And those are super important things as well. Yeah, you know, internships are great for uh, trying to understand. And, you know, a company will take more interns than it can have permanent employees so internships also give you a chance to see something that you might not be able to get as a permanent employee because just of the numbers that's not and and a variety of things so actually having experience of different companies and their different approaches uh, before you start different things i mean it's not that any of them are right or wrong but say in a large tech company, there's actually a different philosophy of approach very often. I mean, there's some things are common, but some things are different. And seeing what those things are and thinking about why different ones work in different circumstances will make you more productive. Um, you can also intern in academic groups sometimes. Some academic groups do internships. Is that sort? Of, is that just sort of like a postdoc or, or do you just like drop in for a while? No, I think it's sort of like a shorter term thing. I, it's maybe not as common as companies. People often used to ask me if I did interns in the group and it was sort of like, well, not really, but some, some do. I think that the, then there's the, the residencies are interesting. I think Microsoft have one now, but the Google Brain residency as well, that seems like an interesting way of also understanding how companies work. I, it's also, but it's also, that by the same token, it's hard to, if you're only doing three months and you're not necessarily getting close to the day-to-day, -day, I know like my team is very excited, you know, the interns come in and that's like an opportunity to do something new and different. So it's actually not the regular way we're working. We're excited, as excited by them coming in. Yeah, so, so you're also seeing a sort of distortion, you know, something, you, 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 well, you hopefully are seeing the company in its best side, uh, hopefully. And the other thing, of course, you meet a bunch of new people of a similar career stage to you that you wouldn't have met otherwise. That, that's also great. So 
part of my I, I'm someone who has always delays decision making. I keep on sort of doing things to expand my options rather than. So I, I I really like the idea of internships, but of course at some point you want to settle and focus, and uh, it's going to be quite a personal decision, I think. Absolutely. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS, or you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Matt Kristner of the Alan Turing Institute. And when we got a chance to talk with him at ICML, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Well, how far do you want me to go back? Undergrad. Start <laughs> undergrad. with undergrad. Okay, you great. don't need okay. to start with kindergarten. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, in undergrad, I studied math and computer science, and I was pretty sure I wanted to be a roboticist. Oh. And so I started my PhD rotating for a month with a roboticist. And then I figured out how hard it was to program a robot. Yeah. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't want to be a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing to figure out. Yeah. Um, luckily, in my second rotation, there happened to be a fantastic machine learning researcher who was nice. also there at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. His name was Killian Weinberger. And uh, after doing a rotation with him, I realized, uh, oh my gosh, this is a, um, machine learning is great. So I, I started doing research on... Sort of a resource efficient learning. He is a metric learning person mm-hmm. and now a deep learning person. And he's at the University of Maryland now? Uh, sorry, he's now at Cornell. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. But at the time, he had done a, he had worked at Yahoo after his PhD. And oh. I think this sort of gave him a flavor of problems that you would encounter in industry. Got it. Um, like, I want to give you some good uh, web search results, but I can't take a, an hour to do it. Right, um, right. <laughs> so these are the sort of problems I started working on. I got great, this, this wonderful mentor named Eddie, and he he sort of guided me through. I was I was able to sort of work on papers by helping him out without having to write my own initially. Nice. Uh, yeah, because uh, I had no idea how to do that. Um, <laughs> and... So I started sort of through, once I was trained up to sort of understand a, a bit of how to publish papers, then um, we started moving into sort of more of Killian's wheelhouse, uh, mm. metric learning. Um, and we worked on a paper that took word embeddings and converted them into document distances. Mm. Um, and we sort of hit the right time to write this paper nice. because uh yeah word embeddings were just getting cool and uh <laughs> so we published that um and then yeah so i i guess at some point in my phd i was like killian uh, am i working on something that could become a thesis and he's like don't worry about it just oh, no. like do good work when do i get out we'll killian tell me when i get out <laughs> yeah, and, and I sort of didn't know what it took to yeah. get out as well. Oh. Um, it happened that Killian sort of had like this broader vision, and luckily these works sort of fit into place, although I didn't understand it at the time. Um, <laughs> so it was, an, it was invaluable to work with him. And then uh, as I was graduating, I saw a talk at NIPS, this was 2015, I think, mm-hmm. um, that Zubin gave at... Uh, Mm. And he was like, there's, it was like maybe the last slide of his talk. And 
he was like, there's a new institute that we're establishing in the UK. It's called the Alan Turing Institute. You'll get to work with people like me. And I was like, sweet. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Sign me up for some Zubin Garamani. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I, uh, I was like, yeah, I'll definitely apply to that. And um, I was doing other postdoc interviews in Europe at the time. And mm. so I was lucky enough to be able to go there to interview. And uh, I interviewed... The panel was really tough. It was full of like hardcore m- mathematician. It was a person in optimization, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" My my whole pitch was like solving sort of real world problems, but it uh, it wasn't. I, don't, I was like, "This isn't technical enough for them." And so I went, I left. I I got like a pint, and I was like, "Well, you know, it was fun to be in uh, the UK for a day." <laughs> um, but yeah, then a couple months later, I heard they got an offer, and I was like, "Well, okay, awesome, one better than I thought." Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I can still feel some of that excitement. Um, and then um, it's been great. The institute—I don't know if do, is it okay if I talk about the institute. Please, okay, tell us all about the institute. <laughs> okay, well, it's been great. So the institute. The way it's worked is if you're an so if you're an early career faculty member, it's it takes a, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get a postdoc. Mm-hmm. So there's this this sort of need, this demand, and if you're a postdoc, you'd like to learn new things that you haven't done in your. You want to be able to find a new question or extend yourself in some other way. You want yeah. to be able to get a, get into a niche that you haven't been in for the last four to six years of your life. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so, the uh, like one way to go about that nicely is sort of just talk to a bunch of different researchers about their interests and see if they sort of align with yours. And so it was it was this perfect pairing where I got to work with people who are interested in really interesting problems. They're, they're trying to build their research career because mm-hmm. they're early career researchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they still want tenure. <laughs> uh, and... And they wanted to work with with people that they wouldn't have been able to fund anyways. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It, so I I basically treated it as a postdoc with multiple different professors. That sounds and amazing. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, and and the nice the nice thing about the institute is you can treat it multiple ways. So I know that other people have been starting to supervise people. They've been so they've done postdocs already, mm. and they're. It allows you to better interpolate between mm. like PhD and faculty mm-hmm. and sort of see what you need. Um, uh, like use it to make it a position based on what you need. So I just finished my PhD, so I, I wanted to make it sort of more of a research position, but you can make it sort of a, more of a supervision position if you like. Nice. So, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And you've been thinking about, you've been thinking a lot lately about questions around fairness and bias and like explainability or at least like opening boxes and being able to look inside them. So tell me about what you've been excited about (laughs) recently. So I met a couple of other research fellows uh, and other postdocs at the Institute. And we were all sort of, we sort of noticed that there there was this exciting new field in, in machine learning where we started to be a bit more introspective a bit about using machine learning mm. um, and its effects. So this field has very deep roots, but maybe the point where I started to realize its, its sort of importance was in this class, now classic article that ProPublica wrote mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. The, the compass algorithm and, yeah. 
I don't know if, should I, should I? Please. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Tell us why it was interesting. Why did it catch your eye? So the article was about how there's a company in the U.S., North Point, that has designed a scoring system for people who are in the U.S. and they are they're going to be considered by a judge whether they should be released on bail mm. or not. And the scoring system is supposed to indicate how likely this person is going to commit a crime if they were to be released. Recidivism uh, indicator. Exactly. Yeah. Recidivism indicator. So the higher the score, the more likely you're going to commit a crime. Mm-hmm. A judge see, sees this and uses this in his or her uh, decision-making process. Wow. Um, and this article by ProPulica talked about how if you look at the outputs of this algorithm, and uh, specifically... The specific outputs, if I remember right, were the false positive rate. The algorithm was more often giving black people in jail a higher score than than white people in terms of that didn't deserve a a higher score. So, so if you look at the labels, um, they were they were inflated. Talk Um, about reinforcing the world that we have. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, so, so this turned out to be a very complex problem because North Point came back and said, well, our scores are well calibrated. So Mm. this is a a slightly different condition. It's the inverse condition, really. So then there was a famous paper afterwards by John Kleinberg um, out of Cornell, where they said, well, you can't in general have calibration at the same time that you have uh, this control of false positive and false negative rate. Uh. Um, so there's this sort of, these are these are diametrically opposed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so this became sort of a murky observational issue if when we try to define fairness in some sort of observational way. Yeah. So I was talking with, back at the Institute, um, after this had happened, I was talking with Josh Loftus and Chris Russell. Um, Josh is now at NYU and mm-hmm. Chris is at U- University of Surrey. And um, Josh was like, well, I, I'm starting to think that maybe fairness is more of a causal issue than a, sort of an observational issue because you, mm. you sort of want to address the underlying causes of this unfairness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the three of us started talking about this, and then we posed this, this question to Ricardo Silva at, at UCL, who's uh, done a lot of great work in causal inference. And um, through talking, uh, the, the four of us, we started to realize that one issue with these observational definitions is once you create some condition, these are usually equality conditions. Mm-hmm. We want the same false positive rate. We want the same calibration. You not only run into these impossibility conditions, but you start to, it's unclear that the way you enforce these equality conditions, that it actually fixes the, the underlying oh. unfairness at hand. Oh, no. Um, so, 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 I mean, for instance, you could do not enough or mm-hmm. you could do too, too much. much. Yeah, um, yeah. So instead, so this is sort of our intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we said, well, if instead you can draw a causal model that describes how something like race influences certain other attributes. The example that we used most often was in a law school admissions. Mm. So you have a law school data set, you have information about someone's undergraduate GPA, you have information about their law school entrance exam, mm-hmm. and then you want to try to figure out if they're going to do well in their first year at mm-hmm. law school. Well, 
there's a lot of evidence that what race you are can unfairly influence these outcomes that we would use to try to decide whether or not someone was going to be successful. So, so if you're a particular race, you may have different economic histories because right. of the past. So that gives you an unfair a disadvantage for how many placement exams you get to take, um, which affects your overall entrance exam score. You also don't see, there's this thing called, this phenomenon called stereotype threat. So you don't see a lot of people of your same race in sort of high, let's say, you mm. know, law professor positions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you sort of feel, this isn't my thing. I like, I, I don't belong here. So this is sort of a, a known threat. And so this may influence your performance in yeah. various ways. Teachers may implicitly treat you differently by putting you in honors classes or not, yeah. depending on whether they think you're ready. This right. could be certainly bias. So our idea was to sort of try to begin to model these biases using a causal model. And once we thought of this, we realized this is this is sort of nice because it lets us not only use data to model these biases. There are a lot of nice algorithms for discovering causal models mm-hmm. from data, but we can also leverage people's expert knowledge about these things yeah. to say, oh, this, you know, there's been a study that shows there's this relationship. And so we should we should look for this kind of influence. And even maybe if it doesn't show up in the in the data at hand. Yeah. And so that led us to this definition of fairness that we called counterfactual fairness, which says that a decision-making process is counterfactually fair if you would get the same prediction mm-hmm. had you been a different race or mm-hmm. a different gender mm-hmm. or whatever you're trying to make sure you're fair with respect to. Yeah. And so this was this was a paper at, at in NIPS 2017, and in this paper we showed that we can design such classifiers and sort of interrogate things using causal modeling so this was yeah this uh this starting from here we've sort of started to address other questions that i think are more like theoretically interesting like do you have the right causal model how do you make sure of that but we just we really like this method because it this definition excuse me of counterfactual fairness because counterfactuals are something that in law people have thought about um in philosophy It's a fungible idea. You can carry it lots of places with you, and it still works, and people sort of have a framework for it. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly That's a better way to say it. That's exactly right. (laughs) So does this... You have have a pretty amazing paper here at ICML this year. Um, Does that also bring in ideas around counterfactual fairness, or is this taking a different look? So the the paper on fairness at ICML that I'm working on doesn't consider uh, causal models. I... In follow-ups, I, I definitely want to, but this one was sort of looking at another practical issue with a lot of these fairness methods. So this this paper is called Blind Justice, um, and it become clear nice. why. But <laughs> but the idea is that a lot of these fairness methods, including counterfactual fairness, assume that when I am going to make a fair classifier, I have access to people's race, uh, Mm. their demographics, their gender. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense you need this information uh, because without it, you don't know how to correct for these things. So this is important for all algorithms that we developed after the one where we're like, well, why don't we just remove race and gender, which doesn't work because um, uh, you can't 
correct for the impact of those things on other parts of the person's, I don't know, data package. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we totally disagree with the people who say, like, I can't see race, or I can't, uh, right? Because yeah, yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> this is something that Josh always likes to add because he's he knows politics quite well. But yeah, so you you can't just ignore, you can't be so like race blind. You have to you have to see how that affected people's Got it. Uh, uh, information. Um, so, but with that, there's a lot of barriers to getting this data. Mm. So, for instance, like if I was if I was a company if, uh, and you were a user. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, okay, Catherine, I want to give you a fair decision. Mm -hmm. To do so, I'm going to use this machine learning algorithm and that, and I I start, basically, you tune me out. You say, okay, he's he's saying some You're going to collect information about me. That's great. I'm going to keep using your service and you'll vacuum (laughs) up whatever about me. I... That like falls off. Yeah. 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 And then at the end, the person asks like, okay, so can you give me your race or your gender? And, and the person just says no, because like, I would imagine if I don't, you know, if I don't know so much about, um, machine learning or, or even, uh, if I'm less familiar with, with anything digital and any sort of computing, architectures or environments it feels like very sensitive information that's yeah. probably the last piece of information you're going to hand out to someone who asks for it yeah, yeah. and if the yeah and if i don't like know about these things i usually don't trust them so mm-hmm, well mm-hmm. and so why should i believe that you're going to do something reasonable with this yeah. data and there are also legislative difficulties so now with the general data protection agreement the gdpr mm-hmm. it requires companies to have explicit informed consent of Mm -hmm. the individuals for using this sensitive data. Otherwise, um, they're not allowed to use it unless it's sort of, they can justify that it's mission critical. Right. Um, Some very restrictive definition. So what we're doing with this blind justice paper is we're saying, can we design a system that allows individuals to keep their sensitive data private while enabling companies to train fair machine learning classifiers. Wow. Uh, so that's, yeah, that, that's the idea. And the way this works is using these exciting new techniques in multi-party computation, mm-hmm. um, secure multi-party computation. And the way these techniques work is um, sort of this, the nicest example to explain these is sort of this classic example. It's called uh, the Yao's billionaire problem or millionaire problem, I think. Okay. Um, and <laughs> it's uh, it's actually quite a it's actually quite a pompous example now that I think about it. But <laughs> it's basically you have a bunch of millionaires. Okay. Um, like and, you do. Uh, like you do. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to know who makes the most mm. without disclosing mm. how much each person makes. Got it. <laughs> This is, wow, this is pretty, yeah, this is not a well-motivated problem. Um, but, but, okay, in general, you just have a couple parties that want to, they want to compute some function, or they want to, in this case, the function is um, max, mm. um, uh, without disclosing any of their data. Right. And so the idea here is the users are going to encrypt their sensitive data. Mm-hmm. They're going to pass it to the company and then the company is going to engage alongside a regulatory body mm. in a 
this sort of uh, multi-party computation. Got um, it. So that neither the company nor the uh, regulator Has discovers full information all at one time. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Nice. So that's that's the approach. That's the overall. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the privacy guarantees are specific. So mm. the privacy guarantees are that no one gets to see the sense of information in the clear, mm. which is different from sort of a differential privacy guarantee. Right. So we don't make any sort of model inversion guarantees. Like if you have the model. Differential privacy guarantees, like given the model, I can't invert it to figure out who would use to train and have the, the data. Full. Yeah, I think that would be possible, but we didn't investigate this sort of guarantee. But given this sort of that you don't see the sensitive information in the clear, you can make three sorts of different protocols. The first is to verify that the company is using a fair model, mm. and so the way this works is. They give their model and they engage in a, the regulator and the company engage in a routine that uh, makes sure that it satisfies some fairness condition. Hmm. And then the if it does, the regulator gets a certificate. The second protocol is to train a fair model. Mm-hmm. And the third one is if a user says, okay, the company made some prediction that influences my my livelihood yeah and i don't think it's fair right if that's the case what they can do is they can send their data and the, their decision again their sensitive information is private mm-hmm. and the regulator can use the certificate they got in the first protocol to verify that not only is the function the, the fair one yeah. but that it gave the decision that was given by the person. Got it. Um, so it requires reproducibility on the part of the regulatory body. They are tasked with... with. They So they engage, again, in, in a sort of this Got two-party it. protocol yeah. with, the, with the company. So if the company is you know gets this complaint and is like oh no we have to use this uh, fairness model in this protocol then it will pass the this certificate check mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, but there's sort of these two implicit checks there's a certificate check yeah and then there's a check that that's the actual output that Got it. the function okay. would have given right and right if it's not then you know you have a power yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly nice. that sounds so fascinating and, i mean it seems like this is a foundational building block in in a lot of like the security and privacy problems that or questions that people are trying to ask right now are you working on implementation or applications with any groups by groups you mean companies or regulatory bodies people Uh who are like this looks really cool we should try this out in the real world on some human mouse data whatever data set we've got (laughs) let's try it (laughs) yeah so um so the institute has just begun to sort of talk so I think the first step the institute has, uh, has been trying to just get this work out there, and this is a great way to do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a cool paper, so. <laughs> uh, but I think the plan is hopefully uh, once this sort of gets out there to engage with with certain bodies. So I, I think this is still this is still coming. Cool. This hasn't happened yet, but um, I'll keep you posted. So Matt, you also have, you have another paper that you're working on with a different group here. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the title is TAPAS, but that's <laughs> yeah. an acronym for something much more complicated. <laughs> Can you tell us about the paper and what it actually means? Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> this paper is another privacy work. And the idea is 
for achieving privacy in a particular scenario that we call uh, prediction as a service. Mm. Um, so this is something that we already know and love. Um, one common example is your spam filter mm -hmm. uh, for email. So this is uh, something that you may... What you may do is you, you may have a couple spam emails um, and you may mark them as spam or not. And then these emails get, get sent to Google and Google uses the label information you've given it to train a classifier to detect spam. Mm -hmm. um, and so in general, the prediction as a service paradigm is you're a user. You want some sort of high quality prediction about some data that you have. Yeah. So you, you'd like to ship it to some high quality machine learning classifier and then get a prediction back. Mm -hmm. And right now this sort of service is good for I, I would say like arguably not very practical scenarios. So pretty narrow I, questions, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so if for instance if I wanted predictions maybe for personal finance, mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I may not trust certain companies with that data. Yeah. Uh, if I wanted health predictions, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust this, this sort Probably of Probably less willing to ship your information, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our goal was to allow users to just encrypt their data mm. and then run with just, and different from the previous work I talked about, with just one body, the, the company that is giving these predictions, to make prediction just on this encrypted data without ever looking at it and then sending the prediction back. Nice. Um, and... While it seems sort of a small difference having just one body instead of two, yeah. uh, the technical difference is, is huge oh. um, because if you have another body that you, another person or even the user themselves that mm -hmm. can engage in communication, this severely reduces the runtime. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I would assume that every time you bring in another body, there's some sort of like factor, probably like a fourth or something, some sort of crazy like exponential <laughs> thing that you're increasing the runtime by. Yeah. Right? It's significant. And, and the, the sort of the intuition with encryption is that whenever you perform encryption, sorry, computations on encrypted data, mm. you start adding noise to this encryption mm. and once you add enough noise when you try to decrypt it it's it's just garbage garbage yeah. yeah whenever you can communicate you can usually reduce this noise significantly nice. um and if you can't the other way that people have traditionally done this is using a technique called bootstrapping but previously this is this has been super expensive mm. but there are some really cool they call these third generation crypto systems homomorphic crypto systems that allow you to bootstrap really quickly. Wow. Um, they're quick, but they bootstrap after every sort of binary operation. Oh. Um, so you could build a computer out of this, but it wouldn't be fast because yeah. you have to form many binary operations <laughs> yeah, right. to yes, do right. very simple computations. <laughs> yeah. So at the same time in machine learning, there's been a lot of nice developments on binary neural networks, mm -hmm. which perform all of their operations in binary ways. And so previously the motivation for these had been running them on embedded devices mm. or a sort of, we don't have a lot of compute. But what we saw is that because there's these developments in encryption and that allow you to bootstrap quickly, but only for sort of binary operations, mm -hmm. that this 
these developments in binary neural networks were sort of really well suited for this this kind of crypto system. Nice. Um, and so we what we showed is sort of we could design specialized circuits to compute the operations of a binary neural network wow. that enabled us to to only have one party mm-hmm. to do all the computations on encrypted data and then return predictions from that wow um, so that sounds amazing <laughs> thanks <laughs> i mean it sounds like it would have huge implications for like computation at the source like doing sensitive manufacturing and things like that where you have very specific tasks that you're trying to do and it's the information in the sorting is not it's like one question over and over again right yes but, yeah yes that's yes. so cool yeah so if you have yeah some high quality uh, predictor, high, high quality machine learning model, and you know you'd like to use this, then this is, yeah, this is sort of our target scenario. And uh, yeah, the hope is now that if you, the data is encrypted, you can start, we can start thinking about using this for more sensitive applications. That sounds so cool. So I just want to mention that. <laughs> yeah, of course. And tell us about who you um, worked in the paper with. This paper was with Adria mm-hmm. uh, Gascon. And the first author is Amartya Sanyal. Uh, he's a PhD student at Oxford. Audrey is another research fellow at the Turing Institute. Mm-hmm. And the this was with also Varun Kanade at Oxford. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk about it with us today. Thanks a lot, Catherine, for interviewing us. Great. Great talking to you. Awesome. <laughs> Matt Kushner of the Alan Turing Institute in the UK. Well, that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.